You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. The 602 Club is back for 2024, and I am your host here, Matthew Rushing, and I am so excited as we kick off this new year to be joined by none other than Rebel John Mills. This is Rebel Moon, really, not Sparta, but, you know, there are some similarities with maybe that you notice that you can Mm -hmm. tell it's the same sort of visual sensibility. Might see some things you find familiar, don't know. Might be there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say some of these things are like things you've seen before. Yes. They bear a resemblance (laughs) to things that may be familiar. That is the polite way to put it. Yes. Well, we are going to be talking all about Rebel Moon uh, in this crossover between Snyder Cuts and the 602 Club. So welcome. Uh, We will look forward to, of course, having a longer version of this movie coming out in the summer, as well as part two coming out in April. And then the longer version of that coming out sometime later. Uh, So, yes, we will plenty to talk about in the Zack Snyder world. But before we dive into Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, the PG-13 cut, uh, we want to thank you for listening. Uh, Again, this is our first episode of the year. Of course, you're realizing that we're not doing episodes every week right now. I've hit a new job, and I'm very excited about that, but... Time is a little bit different, and so we're still glad to be bringing you episodes. You can find us all over social media under the name at the 602 Club on Twitter or X. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. And if you're listening to this, make sure you subscribe wherever you are, and you'll get the podcast as soon as it drops. You'll also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm with the entire network online at trek.fm and if you want to support us over on patreon you can do that at patreon.com slash trek.fm there's also a listeners only discussion group housed on facebook that you can join called the babel conference and talk to fans from all over the world so john coming into this we're all very aware uh you know because the news was everywhere that this film was kind of based on an idea that Zack Snyder has had for a very long time. He actually even pitched as a Star Wars film back when everybody was kind of pitching the new regime at Star Wars. They didn't say yes to that, and Netflix ends up picking up this idea and helping him create this Rebel Moon universe. So I wanted to kind of really just dive in at the start here just talking about then the world creation um, and then the universe creation that that Snyder is involved in. And in many ways, I feel like this is absolutely something where you can totally see every single influence that Snyder has had when it comes to sci-fi or kind of like science fiction geekdom, you know, because I feel like, you know, this isn't even just... uh, film but it's also like 
you know, Warhammer and, uh, you know, Starship, uh, art, uh, like space battleship Yamoto and like, it's it's basically a conglomeration of everything that he seems to have loved. So I guess as we dive into this idea of world creation first, how how successful do you feel that this is in this version of the film, this kind of creating a new universe for us to be in? Um, I guess uh, to phrase it this way, do you feel as though this version of the film gives you enough of this universe to which you completely understand and are kind of truly immersed in. Yeah, I do. I, I, I get enough. There's, there's obviously something more complex going on uh, in the background, but it very much has the feel of uh, the only way I could, I could really put it is with all of the stuff you're talking about, there's sort of like a live action anime feel to it, uh, which I appreciate. And I think that the, um, Obviously, the the Kurosawa slash Star Wars similarities are definitely there, um, and it is uh, something that is, you know, um, apparent. I I don't know that it really needs to be super complicated. Like, let, let me ask the question back: Like, where do you see something that needs to be more fleshed out? Right? Like, what? Where am I? What am I maybe not seeing in terms of sure. what what's not fleshed out enough? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good question. I think for me, you know, I've gotten a chance to watch this twice. And I feel like it was only the second time where I was truly getting the connections and just the overall storyline when it came to the universe that we're in. You know, I mean, we have, you know, these different factions with the mother world. Uh, you know, we hear background stories about this king and the queen and them being assassinated, them having this daughter who, you know, is magic um, and, and she's assassinated as well. You know, there's been, you know, decades and, 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 and even centuries, really, it seems like almost of just constant warfare and... I guess the the thing that I feel is that the 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 story itself, the the creation of the universe, the the uh, introduction for us to this universe, is not necessarily as clean as it should be, and I don't think that it's as easy to follow as it needs to be when you're introducing somebody to something that's kind of this complex, you know. Um, there's a lot of complexity here. So there's, there's, you know, then two solutions, I, I, I think, to that, which is, one, uh, you streamline things uh, and just make it a little bit easier to kind of get the gist of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Or you create a longer film that allows you to really marinate in all of this and truly have the time to develop it. And with knowing that's coming... It's like, it's hard for me to even almost judge this, um, but I am going to judge this because it's a product that they put out. And I'm going to say, I just don't think that this film does the best job of truly creating a universe that I can get plopped in, feel like I understand quickly enough so that 
um, I can then do what I would really hope to be doing, which is try and invest then in the characters in the universe that we've placed them in. That's kind of where I've come down to after, you know, seeing this a couple of times. Interesting. I, I don't know if this is something where it's just you and I sort of differ in a way. Not It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just a different thing because I wind up in the camp of like I, I got enough. Um, and I think it's because of the fact that – I don't know. Maybe I'm being more forgiving because I do know – like it's very apparent where things came from. I can look at this and I'm like, oh, look, it's the farmers. Sure. It's the seven samurai. Oh, look at this. That's sort of a Star Wars thing. Oh, look, this looks like a Sith Empire thing. Oh, look, this is acting like anime. Maybe it's um, – because in all honesty, for instance, let's take Star Wars as an example. We've grown up in the shadow of Star Wars. And I, I'm old enough I can remember when they were sort of shooting from the hip a little bit more uh, and there wasn't like a quote-unquote canon um, I've been through the reinvention of the canon like four or five times by this point, which is why when the EU got wiped out, I was like, yeah, okay. Um, I think that um, it's it's just one of those things where I think maybe that's why like the original Star Wars in 1977 for like my dad or somebody of that generation they don't really go into a lot of detail about stuff, but you get what's going on. And it's because right. it's using that, exactly. that cultural shorthand. So maybe I'm, yes. in, I'm just in that camp, you know? I, I, not a good thing, not a bad thing, but like, for me, I'm like, yeah, this is enough. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, we're close enough to the same age, uh, and in, in the sense that I think, you know, when I saw Star Wars 2, I didn't have any, under, uh, you know, trouble understanding exactly what's going on, sure. basically, from moment one, right? And I think that's basically what I'm, I guess, judging this by, is that even after two hours and 15 minutes of this film, I don't quite feel like it's as clean as it as it should be. Hmm. Um, and I think part of that is the way that they parse out the information. I think they do a great job by creating a prologue to this film, Mm -hmm. I think that maybe a lot of uh, some of the information that kind of gets parsed out later, almost in the sense of like the, the, the universal backstory for this universe, where we learn about the Imperium, the, the mother world, mm -hmm. we learn about the, the king and the queen, we learn about their daughter uh, later on, and um, them being assassinating and then how that creates this rift. Mm -hmm. You know, all of that is great information, but the places that I think all of that is placed throughout the film make it not that I can't and I didn't, but not as easy to piece all of those pieces of information together because they almost seem contradictory. Hmm. And then I would say the biggest one comes when it comes to the king and queen's daughter, Issa, and... They don't do a good enough job of explaining this, that, and I had to read this online in like the the wiki the wiki thing that fans have made. But and and this could also come from like I know there's I think a comic book or something that goes along with this. Mm, and you know how I feel about like cheats like that. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, yeah. I, that's what I'm saying. But so what I was reading is that the 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 birth of their daughter had kind of changed this king's heart. And 
where once he had only sought expansion in the name of the mother world, his daughter gave him hope for kind of a more compassionate universe. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Belisarius, who is uh, Arthelaus's um, adopted father, mm-hmm. who basically kind of engineers the coup that ends her her and her parents' lives because they want to continue on the war footing instead of making this switch. Again, I think that for me, one, I don't feel like that part's very clear, uh, as clear as it should be. But it's just all of the different ways that this information is parsed out from the prologue to then the stuff we get from, from Jimmy to then the stuff we actually get from Cora. It doesn't create as cohesive and clear of a storyline as I would want. And I think part of that, again, comes from, you know, you were talking about, I and I totally get where all of this is being pulled from. Mm-hmm. But I think it also goes to show where things have been removed mm. to mm-hmm. create a smaller story uh, and, and oh, well, a shorter story, right? Um, and to try and tighten this up where it's like, I I guess what I'm saying is watching this, I almost feel the fact that the film needs to either be longer as it's supposed to be. Yes. The, the, the Zack Snyder edition that's going to be coming, the full edition, mm-hmm. or it needed to be streamlined. Um, but you can't do both. And I think to me, when I'm looking at the world creation specifically, that's where I'm really feeling the struggle of like, I just don't feel like the shorter cut does the film justice um, in the way that I would want this? Like, if this was the only edition that exists, that's how I'm trying to treat it. And it's like, yeah, I can see where it's like, yeah, this is not good enough. I give you that. I give you that. That there is undoubtedly... I think that the major miscalculation with this movie is that Netflix is trying... To, mean Girls is a hit movie again, so I can go ahead and make this reference as we record this. Netflix is trying to make Fetch happen. There is no earthly reason not to just release the director's cut. That's it. Right. Unless Zack Snyder couldn't get it done in time or something like that. But that makes even less sense. Because I always, right. I, you know, when somebody out there can be yelling at their their speakers or their headphones or whatever, maybe I just don't understand how it works, but I would think that a director's cut is the first version you have, and then you trim it down. That makes sense, right? Yeah. 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 Um, exactly. I'm sure that it happens in other ways sometimes where, you know, you have that thing and somebody's like, oh, you know what? I've been thinking about it. I want to put this stuff back in. But there, I, I don't understand why a director's cut wouldn't be the first one that you would release unless you're Netflix and you say, you know what we're going to do is we're going to try to replicate some of that crazy Zack Snyder Justice League fun that Max had. And say, look, we've got the Zack Snyder version of this. It's like, well, you always had the Zack Snyder version of it. You're just forcing him to, you're doing exactly what Warner Brothers did to him with Batman versus Superman. And I hated the theatrical version of that the first time I saw it. Yeah. And then I saw, and then I saw the extended version. I was like, oh, this is a lot better. I really, I actually really like this. So it's like, it's the, the thing is, maybe I'm being too kind, but watching this, I did not have the same sort of, Maybe it's just because I expected, oh, God, I know that this is not the full version. I expected to have a sort of Batman versus Superman reaction to it. 
And when I actually had a good time watching it, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I kind of like this. You know, like may, maybe it's just my expectations worked against me this time. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, no, I think, I think it's, I think I came into this one and I, th- that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because I think I came into this one being a little bit harsher in the sense that like, okay, they're, they're forcing, I don't even know forcing. I don't even know if we'll ever get the true story of exactly why and how all this is working because I think it's all spin, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, from Snyder, from Netflix, and you know, Snyder wants to be able to make the movies he wants to make, so he's going to say what he needs to say to get that to happen. And you no, know, Netflix is going to do what they want to do to try and get money from people. And so, but I think maybe I did come into this one a little bit more judgmental in the sense of like, does this truly work as an enterprise? And, um, so yeah, I think we just ended up flopping basically where we kind of are judging the film and 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 at this at least this version of it. And it's not as though I dislike it or anything like that. Um I think I just am finding myself a little bit frustrated in it. I get um, it. Because I, I, I sense that there is a better version coming. Um and you know, um and I think it's hard because you know with like with BVS, right? You know, I liked the original version and I was filling in a lot of the gaps because it was making sense or in everything there. But also, I think it's easier to even fill in some of those kind of gaps, you know, because I'm super familiar with the Batman Superman stories from so many different types of comics. Whereas this really is in the sense of like when I'm thinking the world creation, the universe he's creating, the intricacies of how the the factions work with the mother world, with the rebels with this king and queen, with their daughter, with the prophecy about their daughter and everything, you know, those have relevancies to the things that he's kind of using as inspiration. And yet at the same time, he's making this his own thing. And so, you know, I want to fully be able to plug into everything that Snyder's trying to create in and of itself in Rebel Moon. And so, and I just, you know, for me, you know, it just it doesn't work as well, I think, in this version, which I'm sure will be ameliorated with, in many ways, with the longer version uh, of the film. See, um, but yeah, what what's funny is I again wind up on the other side of it, where I I actually thought there was enough explanation. Um, like I, I got the the broad brushstrokes that that they're going for, and. Honestly, you know, I, I don't know how it'll react to the director's cut because it was kind of nice to watch something that was a sci-fi property that didn't get bogged down in all of the procedures sort of thing, all the processes and procedures of, of the government. There's a king. Now there's a regent. It's the main bad guy. And he has, you know, uh, uh, his henchmen and... It's a bad thing. Everybody is sad that the king is dead and we have this secret warrior. I'm like, anything beyond that, like, I, I kind of like just learning as you go sort of thing because it's so easy to fall into that um, exposition trap. And yeah. I think that I, 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 I'll, I'll give them credit. I think that there's as much story as you need to make it work and to make it enjoyable where I stumble with it 
is this odd sense that it's, you know, I mean, subtract the credits. It's like two hours, five minutes. It's, it's a long credits at the end of this, right? And again, why not just go for broke? People will watch a three-hour movie, man. Like we've, they keep proving this over and over again. A- Avatar two was like three and a half hours. Everybody loved it. Made two billion dollars. They ate up the Snyder cut. It's four hours long. It's okay. You know, release yeah. the really yeah. release the longer yeah. thing. I think that what's interesting is while this feels a little short changed, some of the action feels a little too indulgent. We, I, I fully expect Snyder to come in and have the slow motion stuff happening. Right, the exaggerated slow motion to emphasize the sword play and stuff. I get it. I dig it. I like his style, baby. It really works. But then there are certain things where I'll take, for instance, the writing of I'll go ahead and make the joke, Buckbeak. It's it's a little much. It's a little much. And it's not helped by the fact that for some bizarre reason the effects don't quite work as well as they think they do in certain shots. And it's like we could have, we could have had him go up, disappear, cheer because he's on the bird, and come back down. We didn't really need that whole thing going on. Um, you know, I, maybe the, I'm sure there's going to be a big payoff in part two or in the director's cut or something like that. But it's one of those things where when he rides a space whale, yeah. But he, but he still. Those are the moments that felt indulgent to me. Those are the moments where I was like, "All right, Zach, come on, let's let's keep moving." And instead, we were like, I was like, oh, okay, you're indulging. I'll I'll stick with it, sort of thing. But it got to be a little, a little much. Yeah, which I mean, that that whole thought leads me to think about you know we talking so much about just the world creation and the sense of the universe. You know, when you're creating a new sci-fi property, design is such a big part of it, mm-hmm. and obviously, both you and I who are so steep in something like Star Trek, which has a a very familiar design from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And one that people just kind of, it was designed that allowed people to just get it from the beginning. Star Wars, same thing, right? Mm-hmm. There's something about the things they designed for Star Wars where people just like get it, but they gravitate towards. And so with the with the design work here, the worlds themselves we see, the ships we get, the weapons, uh, you know, robots like the Jimmy, um, and, you know, all of that. How did this work for you? Because, you know, when you're – the aesthetic of a a new sci-fi universe is so important. I loved the ship design. The sound design I thought was really interesting wasn't crazy about it, but I think on a rewatch, I'll probably wind up liking it more. Um, the because the the sound of the ships was a little, it was it was a little too far for me on, on, with some of the sounds. Like it was sort of like a, an amped up version of what Ben Burt did with some of the stuff in the prequels, where it's like it worked for me in the prequels, but then this there was maybe the sound mix was off on on my TV or you know who knows. Um, but in terms of the visual design, I love the animal design because everything stayed familiar enough that it didn't stretch credulity too much. Um, I loved the design of the Jimmy because it felt like, honestly, a Mobius 
comic book. And that I was like instantly in love with it. I was like, oh wow, that that's that's pure like silver age comic book sort of robot design. But but in a modern expression. I dig it. I really like it. Um I like the the armor of the soldiers because it felt real, right? It, it, where I think the design really works is the fact that he very much goes old school Star Wars, used universe sort of stuff. Like we saw it with the rebel base in and, and you know all the rebel stuff in the original trilogy. That's stuff I respond very well to, not just because it's Star Wars, but because we live in a used universe. There's no way to keep things shiny and looking like an Apple store. Like, I like the fact that the soldier's armor looks like it doesn't fit perfectly and they have they have to make certain uh, functionality and usefulness, you know, usability uh, concessions and stuff like that. I like little touches like the... Um, I guess it was Ray Porter's character, um, the the lead revolutionary who goes off with them. I like the war paint sort of feel with that. That's effective. That's really good. And at the same time, the a lot of the the costume design called back to the lower budget sci fi stuff that I love in the eighties. Um, and the gunner having, you know, his eyes covered. That you know that that's that sort of like subtle little thing. And I know I'm rambling at this point. All of this to say, I, I thought the design was really cool. I really liked what they did. I could tell who the good guy ship was and who the bad guy ship was. I could tell who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. And that's sort of, that's visual language that's very necessary to be quick plug in, to look at the screen and say, good guy, bad guy, and and be able to to plug into that. The one design that I thought was odd and indulgent and... It's a scene that I sort of struggle with is, um, was it, was it Jenna Fisher playing uh, spider lady? That was a design that I was kind of like, eh, okay. Like it, it, for some reason it just didn't, you know, click with me, but, but I've rambled on enough. How, how did you end up with the design? Yeah. So I, this is going to be so fascinating because in many ways, um, we're not on the same page. Oh no! Um, in this one, I, I, so the design for the ships here comes so much from the, the kind of the camp of Warhammer or uh, the space battleship Yamoto type look. I hate it. I think it looks terrible. Really? It looks terrible. It's so. It's boring. You think it looks terrible and boring. It's literally just looks like a battleship in space. And I don't like it at all. Um, I think it's kind of lazy design work to me. Really? Um, I hated the fighters that the rebels had because, it, I mean, they literally had plane tails. I just, it, it, nothing about it works for me. It's, it's, it again. Wow. It's, um, I am floored. A, I'm absolutely yeah, I do floored. I not like it. Um, you know, I, I think that type of thing works. Uh, it works in a place where you're doing like Sky Captain in the World Tomorrow kind of thing, where you have the retro, mm. uh, those type of things. But I don't think it works here for me. Um, I, I, you know, I, I want you to have sat down and truly thought about 
you know, what things look like in this universe. And to me, all of the ship designs here just looked like somebody put no time into it at all. And I know that's not true. I know that's not true. But that's where it left me feeling. I just did not enjoy it. Hmm. Um, I also, um, some of the world designs I thought were really cool. Uh, others I was really annoyed by. Um, the, the the Veld world, I, I thought, um, and this is the issue. One, putting a big, huge ringed planet so close to another planet just didn't make sense and it looked so cliched sci-fi to me it, it, it's trying too hard um and i didn't like it um hmm. i also didn't like it because uh, there were too many scenes on a planet like that where it's like you're in a volume uh and it uh, of that and it just doesn't look right um the other thing i didn't love is i uh and a lot of the planet designs is that especially the planet where they go pick up Tarek yeah. uh, or Tarek. Um, it just, it looks like you're trying too hard. Let's have everything be spiky rock formations. Mm. It, it just, you know, the, the, the genius of Star Wars is the way in which George Lucas just took what's on our planet and amped it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So everything looks familiar enough now, but it's just crazy enough to be in the prequels he got he got a little frisky yes he does get okay. a little bit crazier but he gets still a little bit frisky. it's he does but still it you know even when they uh you know i, I think of episode two when he anakin's going on the speeder on tatooine right and you have all these major huge rock formations in that part of tatooine mm-hmm. but it feels like monument valley on steroids right mm-hmm. so it it's it's not so far out of our imagination right uh naboo with its ridiculous waterfalls right it's like it doesn't feel too far out of our ima- imagination but there's a scene in the background on veld where there's these huge mountains and this waterfall going that yeah. just doesn't look real at all like the, it doesn't look like it could even exist on any kind but, of planet. But, but that but that's the thing is i appreciate something like that because it's it is crazy it is off the rails and if you can do it why not now did they succeed in making it convincing that's the trick did they succeed in making well, it convincing it, not necessarily but from like a right. design perspective yeah. i appreciate well, the I hell think that's out of the thing like is that. that it was so unconvincing that it was just it doesn't work for you know and that i, I think you know, that's what that's, i'm complaining well, about that's sort of the thing that i think that that gets to this being a netflix production i get why warner brothers turned this down is because the the reported budget between the two movies is like 166 million dollars. You do some quick math, it's 83 million dollars for per movie, right? But that's not how it works, but let's just say it works that way. Sure. And the way they filmed it took advantage of like 83 million dollars in like tax credits and incentives. So they literally did this for half the money they needed to. Uh, or less than half. They, let's say they did it for a fraction of what it would cost. Whereas you have James Cameron on the other end of the scale where it's like, I'm going to take 30 years and 600 quadrillion dollars and you'll go ooh and ah and be entertained. But I'm not going to fault the design for that. Right? I, 
I'll fault Netflix for the fact that they'll pay $500 million to be able to run Friends for six months. But they won't give $500 million to Zack Snyder to make his crazy waterfall look 100% convincing. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's a place where it's execution um, and so, but there are other parts of the planet designs where I just like, it was even the concept that I just didn't love. Um, and of course with the ships, I didn't love, but things I, you know, the, you're hundred percent right. And I thought it was fantastic. I thought that the Jimmy design was so cool. And all I wanted was more of that character yep. because I found him to be kind of fascinating, this almost sentient, you know, robot, um, who, has been a warrior and a protector of this princess that, you know, got assassinated and and now, you know, is in this place of subservience. And so that's really interesting. And for the most part, I thought that the uh, weapon design was was cool, you know, um, you know, withstanding, I guess, the swords that just basically are obviously the lightsaber stand in. Um, but, well, uh, the, let me give you a problem with the lightsaber stand-in is she's sitting there fighting uh, Spider-Lady, and then, you know, it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to turn him on. And I'm like, well, this fight seems like it could have gone a lot faster if you just turned him on from the start there. Let's go throw that idea yes, out there to you. Yeah. Just yeah. just spitballing right now. And I get it. I wish there had been – like, I, I actually got it. I got it. She didn't want to kill her, right? Because everybody else is like, oh, that's impressive. And she's like, don't. Don't celebrate this. This is awful. I, I like so I get it. It's like there's your there's your character saying I I didn't want to do it. That's why I didn't do it at first. Okay, I'll play along. But in the moment that dialogue belonged before she ignited those swords and say if I turn these on, you know how this goes. And give Spider Lady and I know she has a character name, but give Spider Lady the opportunity to say I don't care. Right. Bring it. I don't care if I die anymore. Like that actually changed the weight, changes the weight of the scene and the character interplay. All, all that to say, I liked standing lightsaber stuff. I think maybe one of the things that I react to that makes me enjoy this maybe a little more is the fact that it does feel visually a lot like the Tales of the Jedi comic books that came out in the 1990s where it feels like Star Wars Galaxy before the Force is discovered. And I even look at that the you know the flashback to the little princess who can give life. I'm like this would have worked as a origin of the Force story of the first person who figured out how to unlock the Force. That would have really worked. Um but again, I I'm just fascinated by it because I agree with you about the execution that there are certain shots where I'm like, what is going on here? And then I find out where the budget was and I'm like, that just feels like you didn't Netflix didn't commit, but Snyder Snyder saw his shot and, and had to get it done sort of thing. Yeah. It also goes to show you places where I think that, Say you rein in the Buckbeak scene, mm -hmm. you have more money to spend on other scenes. That is you true. Know? So, I mean, it, it comes down to allocation of funds and what's most important. 
that scene being longer is not more important, I think, than the overall look and feel of this entire universe. And 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 again, I mean, even uh, that that first scene on Veld where Cora uh, is, you know, doing the plowing, it's like it's such a bad shot. Like it's so. Uh, badly composited that you never feel like she's actually standing in a field looking out at a you know ringed planet behind her it just it it feels like she's standing on a bad composite of a of a you know I'm, a mandalorian scene that doesn't come together I, i'm i'm an old romantic at heart that it looked so much like a cover of like a pulp sci-fi novel that i would have grown up reading that like it hits that trigger for me and I'm like, yeah, good enough. I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. Um, and and I, I can see why that would work there in, in with thinking of it that way. I think the thing is, is that I'm so I've so enjoyed people making such high quality sci-fi films. Over the last few years, mm. I especially think of the the genius of the way they brought up to life Dune. Mm. You know, I think of the True. things that Christopher Nolan has done, and I think of you know even the Star Wars films. I even think of Andor, you know, and the production value there for a show that looks way better than this in a lot of senses. And so, yeah, I I can I could see that. Sure. You know, it's it's um. It, and that's just where and and the and and I want to love it because I you know everybody knows I love Zack Snyder so I'm I I want this to be successful maybe I'm I know it's just weird for me to be the one that's harder on it but so the story itself uh the imperium uh led by uh, uh the regent our evil uh, our evil guy noble and uh, who is the strangest character in the sense that I've seen? He's I don't know some sort of cyborg who can be reborn and transferred into other bodies. And anyway, he comes to Veld and demands food for the mother world, uh, and kills the father of the town. Shenanigans ensue, and uh, a group of people go to search out uh, the Magnificent Seven to protect their town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just want, I kind of wanted to ask you like that, that really is truly, it's basically the, <laughs> it reminds me of the plot of the three amigos. <laughs> We're going to go find people to f- save our town. <laughs> and it also reminds me of, um, an episode of, of enterprise in the first season where they come across some Klingons, uh, you know, roughing up a deuterium town. I mean, the magnificent seven, um, so it, in that sense, it's a very uh, basic plot on that side. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, it's definitely the the inciting incident is very straightforward. Um, I think that it does an appropriate job of setting things up, though, because it it really does show the simplicity of life and the border town and the living you know, it, it very much has that feel of like we're just simple farmers out here in the middle of nowhere. And it shows I mean, the thing is, I, I think it it really works well because of the fact that it it is a very efficient way to set up the 
the way that you can live in any system of government and not care until it turns its eye on you, and then it's too late. And if you think you can deal with, you know, power-hungry bureaucrats, you're 100% wrong. And it's an important lesson for, for kids to learn, I'd say. So maybe the PG-13 can be useful for kids. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, yes, it's a plot we've all seen a billion times, but we've seen it a billion times because this inciting incident is very straightforward. And so you don't have to spend a lot of time explaining the complexities of how this rare crystal grows in a field 16 paces away from the blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, we're, we're, an, we're an empire and we need resources and we're here for them. The ultimate question becomes, and I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously a question you can answer, but it also shows the sort of uh, gleeful inhumanity, uh, the gleeful uh, cruelty of those power mad bureaucrats because of the fact that they know they can just walk up and just take everything anyway. They just enjoy making the people dance and suffer and turn them against each other. And it's like, you know, because there's no reason for the Imperium not to just show up and be like, give me what you got. Not even ask what your surplus is. Just be like, give me what you got. And that's it. And I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to stay here for a grow. I'm going to send people here for a growing season. They're just going to take anything. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Yeah. And it's, it's that true evil is that act of making sure you make everybody suffer along the way and hate each other and turn against each other. And you still get what you want because, you know, you've got the army. So what you're saying is, is that Attica's noble is Jay-Z being like, show me what you got. Not at all. Not at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, I mean, so the, the something to talk about in, 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 um, and that was a thing, you know, when we, when it came to, I think, the story that I was maybe also disappointed with, you know, to me, the things that have really, you know, driven the discussions that we've had on Snyder Cuts about Snyder's films, and as we've talked throughout the years um, here on the 602 Club, one of the things I've always loved is the way in which his stories and his thematic elements, I, f I feel like, feel very resonant. Um, and they, they feel, you know, um, almost ripped from the headlines a lot of times. Uh, and I think they, they, they work into the story so that, um, they don't feel like you're kind of being slapped over the, you know, the, the top of the head with what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. But I felt like the script here was pretty clunky in that sense, where you had too many times where you have characters who are saying things like, oh, kindness is a virtue worth dying for. And, you know, it, you, there were just too many places where I felt like we're telling, we're not showing. And I don't really, again, this happened multiple times where you had characters talking about, you know, the loss of compassion and the Imperium and everything. And it's just like, it's so prosaic. Like, just, Ooh, look at you, just college write, word. 
Yeah, but just but use the story, allow it to show me these things rather than having to have a character tell me these things, which is a problem to which that's the type of place where I feel that a longer film can just show you stuff and not tell you stuff. And it's like, well, I need a character to say these things because I don't really have time to completely show this reality. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just need the theme to be stated by a character rather than to have the theme play out. And it it just kind of like when it came to the story here, especially in this version of the film, it just kind of frustrated me because I'm used to Snyder being better than that. Um, I'm used to his films, I think, being subtler in their approach to their themes and yet powerful and resonant when it comes to their themes. And this one just felt too, again, prosaic is the word I come up with. Uh, I don't know if I'd be that harsh on it. I think it's very fairy tale ish I think that to your point, I think that some of the dialogue winds up landing a little too hard, a little too clunky because of the cuts we know that were made to make it come in at this time, right? At this runtime and at the PG-13 thing. I think if you have more time to breathe between those moments, which we'll probably get in this direct, this fabled director's cut that we're going to get, I think when you have more time between those quote unquote simple statements it works better and I think that's probably what will wind up happening Um, but that doesn't mean I'm going to give it slack because like you said this is the only cut that exists In in in, in a normal world 20 years ago a director's cut was not something you were talking about when the original cut came out you saw how it was and then you found out Eventually, like yeah, it's a, a planned director's cut. Just feels, er. I will go ahead and bite the bullet and say I think that probably they took too many shortcuts because they knew they were going to get their director's cut. Sure, yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, I, I wanted to ask you. You know, we've got our main character Cora, uh, played by uh, Sofia Botella, who of course was in uh, Star Trek Beyond. She's been a but a mm-hmm. bunch of other things she's about to be in Argyle, which looks phenomenal. Uh, and, you know, I, I found her story to be incredibly interesting. And, and, and I was disappointed in some ways that, you know, we really only get to experience the, the thrust of her story in flashback. Mm-hmm. Because the idea of a young girl who's willing to pull the trigger on the man who killed her family and her planet and then turned into a weapon through brainwashing for that, you know, um, fighting force. Mm -hmm. Um, and then is able to find her way out of that because of her relationship and, you know, her being placed in the protection of princess Issa, her, her, um, her detail mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, fleeing the Imperium at some point um, and finding her way to Veld. Like all of that to me is an incredibly interesting story. And it almost made me wish that that was the first movie. Like mm-hmm. just her story alone was the very first movie. 
and that the rest of this, like this part two, was her then joining this rebellion and uprising against the Imperium. To me, that seems like it would have been a much more interesting story because I would have been so invested in this character who, again, because this film is going so fast and we're into and, and we're, you know, creating so many characters and having to introduce them to us. I just don't get enough time with her. What I'm saying is I like her character so much. I just want more time with her. And I'm sure that the director's cut is going to give us more of that. But but it almost feels like, again, if I take this as this is the only cut that exists and we're just waiting for part two, then I almost feel as though that the end of this movie should have been her coming to Veld. And it's like it almost needs to be a trilogy at that point, if, if you see what I'm saying. I see what you're saying. But what I counter it with is this is what we would have called in, you know, ages past a popcorn movie. And so I, I don't know if I just had a different set of expectations, but all I expected was a popcorn movie when I came into this was just throwing, you know, it's like having a time sort of thing. And so I think that I got enough of her story in the flashbacks um, for this cut to work. And I'm not saying that to be, you know, argumentative or contrarian or anything like that, but it's one of those things where it's also very, very easy to dwell on those sorts of things. And it takes a little too long and a little too much screen time. And I wind up feeling like, okay, I got, I got you. I hear you. I got the point. Let's move on. Did it find the right balance? I'm going to say yes, specifically because I think that the flashbacks, her telling her story to the person who eventually betrays everybody, worked very well. Because, I mean, maybe I'm just exceptionally dense, but I didn't see that betrayal coming. I liked how it worked. And it worked specifically because her character trusted him, and it effectively communicated to me to trust that character. And I effectively trusted that character because of the fact that she relayed so much of her story to him. And it was enough of her story that I understood where she was coming from and she was just starting to open up. And then that trust gets thrown back in her face. Um, So, you know, I mean, it it worked for me. I mean, uh, yeah, that's interesting because to quote Wash, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal, you know, I... I kind of felt that one coming. Um, and so, uh, but I, I, I liked the fact that she told him the story and then he had a reason for hating her, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so that again, I, I think, you know, what it comes down to is that, you know, you came in expecting a popcorn movie. I came at expecting, you know, Zack Snyder doesn't do popcorn movies in that sense. There's always something more to me about his films. <laughs> You know, I don't know. Um, Dawn of the Dead seems an awful lot like a popcorn movie. Okay, I mean, what I'm you'll oh, throw I guess, up I guess after you I've eat it because of all expect. the disgusting stuff in it. But you know, yeah, I, I, what I've come to expect over the years is he, I think he's really grown as a filmmaker, and I, I think sure. to me, I, I so 
as we've moved forward, you know, his his films are really seeming to always be about something. And I, I, I kind of expect more than that. So, you know, it, it's hard. Again, as we keep saying, it's so difficult. Because, yeah, this should just, have, you know, we, we know what's coming. So uh, putting the crew together, as um, our our good buddy from Solo would say, um, you know, I'm 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 putting together a crew for a big time gangster. Uh, and uh, how does this work for you? Because, you know, we ha- we end we have Gunner um, from the beginning. He's on Veld, so he joins her. But then we have Kai then we have Tarek, Nemesis, Titus. And then we have Darian Bloodaxe played by Ray Fisher. So we've got to introduce five characters mm-hmm. uh, in the in the span of by that point, what forty five minutes, maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, um, I think I think they're all vaguely interesting. I just feel like none of them have enough screen time for me to really care about any of them. And I think that's a frustrating thing. The only one I truly care about, and I think is, is it's because the connection with Korra is Gunner because of their relationship there that they've already had on Veld. You could tell he's in love with her. Um, and you know, there's this, uh, tension that they have between them. One, because, you know, he is somebody who thought he could, you know, with his charm and everything, that he could, you know, bargain with the bureaucrats. But as we've learned, there is no bargaining with bureaucrats, uh, um, especially evil ones. And so... But then you repeat yourself. Exactly. Uh, But, you know, yeah, I mean, like, like I said, all of these people are vaguely interesting, but they're... And and I think they all have an interesting aesthetic to them. I mean, the, the... Jaiman Huntsu character Titus alone like literally gets zero to do mm-hmm. in this film, uh, and it, and so I, I guess what I'm coming down to is that I'm just finding this uh, a frustrating enterprise because the whole time I'm butting up against if this was the 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 only film that existed, it's not good enough, uh, and I know that there's another one coming, so it, I almost. Forgive me for saying this, but it's like, why am I watching this version at all? That I agree with. I think the characters got short shrift. I think that some of them don't deserve more shrift. Uh, if one can give more shrift. I, short shrift is the only time I've ever heard the word shrift. So I don't know if there's a long shrift. But some people, their characters. <laughs> they're, the they're, long shrift. You know, there can be too much shrift. <laughs> So, for instance, um, sword fighting, uh, you know, crazy assassin. Like, I don't need a lot there. Doesn't like killing, but is really good at killing. All right, I've seen this character before. You know, uh, crazy lost prince who can ride Buckbeak. I kind of figured him out sort of thing. I'd like to know a little bit more about the general, like you're saying. Like, he gets washed up and then he fights in a fight and he's like... This is a good day. I'm like, oh, it would be nice to see a little more there. But that isn't just, I think, a, a, a shortcoming of a director's cut coming. I think it's a shortcoming of planning it out as two movies. The reason that, and I know 
prepare to roll your eyes, everybody. The reason that George Lucas's six Star Wars movies, and yes, I know Irving Kershner directed, blah, 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 and I know the Richard Marquardt, blah, blah, blah. But the reason that those six work is because they're all self-contained. And I think that a lot of things, and this is a an aspect of the Marvel movie syndrome, is when you know another one's coming, you don't feel the pressure to communicate everything. And I think that's what happens with these characters here, is there's there's going to be a part one and a part two. Let's set aside the director's cut thing. It's 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 that trap of, well, I'll get to it in the next one. No, don't get to it in the next one. What if, what if, God forbid, a meteorite comes down out of space and lands on your house and it blows up? You have now made me a promise that you can't keep. That's not fair. Tell me the whole thing that you need to tell me. And then the rest of the story comes in the next movie. Not this whole thing of like, I'll get to it. You, you have no way of guaranteeing you can get to it. There are so many different things that can happen. Movies regarded as a flop. They pull funding. Netflix folds. You you get abducted by aliens. Your your one copy of it is on the hard drive that gets wiped out when the EMP pulse goes off from space or something like that. Like, who knows? Tell the whole thing. So if I get a lot more of the general in like part two, then that will actually be annoying to me because he does need more time. You you talk, you know, you, you say show, don't tell. I'm told what a tactical genius he is. I never see him do anything to make me understand what a genius he is. Even in the, in the big fight that they have, it would have been great to see him rally some people and like do, you know, get them to do a, a, a you know, um, um, you know, an end around or, or a pincer move, you know, be like, no, you guys get, like see him kick into that general status and give orders. And that's what I don't get. Um, so that is a shortcoming of the, of the film. I, I'm not going to speculate as to why I might never get that for all I know. So I don't want to set the expectation that I do. I think I probably will, but yeah, that, that is definitely a shortcoming. I will absolutely back you up on. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, we've talked about the effects. We've talked about, I think, the action enough. I think we've talked about the idea of whether or not, honestly, that should have just been the director's cut. I think we both agree that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really wanted to ask you about the soundtrack because both you and I have really enjoyed Tom Holkenborg's stuff, mm-hmm. especially with what he's worked with with Snyder. Yes. And uh, this is a place where I'm really fascinated to see how you think he did because, you know, this, you have no connection to anything else. You know, he, he can't rely on anything that, you know, you had Zimmer create or anything like that. This has to be him selling you on this brand new universe. How does it work? It's fine. I like what's happening. I'll probably listen to the score on its own. But if you're trying to emulate these things like Star Wars or even anime or you know, Spaceship Yamoto or whatever, where's my theme? Where's my theme, my march, I should say, that I can come out of this with? 
because that that's very important. And uh, some of the stuff, I mean, I you know, you can tell. You don't even. I don't even need to look it up, right? I know. I know that Tom Holkenberg did it. I hear it through and through. Um, I don't hear him pushing his own boundaries. So I like it because I like what he does, but I don't hear anything that sounds like a composer who's trying to do something. You know, again, to go back to, um, you know, God forgive me. I know, I know it's an easy fallback, but because this is, you know, obviously was tried to be repurposed as a Star Wars sort of thing at one point, it's inevitable that your brain goes that way. But Williams, he didn't rest on his laurels, right? When the prequels come around, we got a lot of really interesting new stuff. It still sounded like a John Williams thing, but there was a, he pushed. There was more choral. There was a love theme. Anakin's theme was really soft and resolved into an Imperial March, like all of those sorts he of things. Used some electric. Yep. I mean, that he hadn't done right. before. Exa- yeah, yeah, there was like electric guitar in Attack of the Clones, for God's sake. So it's good. Uh, it's not great, but it's good. I enjoy it well enough. Um, I think it's effective, but I don't, I didn't, I didn't get all of the verve that I wanted from a score, especially for something that's supposed to be big and epic Mm -hmm. like this. Yeah. You know, um, this feels like Justice League light. Mm. as the score it just felt so similar to so much of the stuff that he did for Zack Snyder's Justice League um and and like you said I think one of the places where Hulkenborg really struggles is to create melody Mm. and a film like this I think needed some melody you needed a chorus theme Mm -hmm. you needed an Imperium theme yeah uh and those are the things that I think he's he struggles with. I don't think he can't do it. I think he could do it. Um, and, and you know, I, I think the problem is is that too many times he just falls back on his rhythmic rhythms mm-hmm. with the big drums and everything, which I don't dislike. I love it. I, you know, especially when you think of like the Man of Steel themes. Mm-hmm. You know that that he did, which I thought was great. Uh, the drums are amazing, right? But it's because Zimmer had tied that with a an actual theme. Uh that mm-hmm. I mean that Man of Steel theme that Zimmer creates there with the help of Holkenborg is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, I think that Holkenborg by himself hasn't been able to produce themes that stand on their own Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's the thing that kind of frustrates me Um, and when I say that you know again Zack Snyder's Justice League he has some incredible movements Mm -hmm. you know I I think of the um, speed force scene oh Uh, oh my gosh he can do it well that never but the music when Superman shows up and it starts yeah. just like yeah. whooping up. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that, that music's incredible. Um, so yeah, he can do it. I just, I wish that Snyder had pushed him more to create more melodic melodies in this rather than just always, um, like kind of pushing to the big drums. Mm-hmm. So 
it's good. Like you said, it's fine. I, I, I would say it's aggressively fine, but that's not good enough because that's the other thing about this, right? Star Wars without John Williams isn't Star Wars. Completely agree. When it, you know, oh, those, yeah. the, especially those original six, right? Given. And even, even some of the, the good work that, uh, you know, I think of um, The Force Awakens. John Williams' work there is still gorgeous, right? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the Ray theme that he creates there, it elevates material that I don't really love in a way that has kind of like makes me feel more warm and fuzzy towards it than if it hadn't existed, his themes. Mm -hmm. That's where I think this, the music could have truly elevated the film in a way that like made me feel differently mm -hmm. uh, about a lot of it. If it had just had um, that full package that we kind of think of when it comes to sci-fi films, you know, again, I reference uh, Villeneuve's Dune, you know, Every single part about that film works, but it's also the way in which Zimmer took the score that created a, a unique sound for that universe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, all in all, John, I, I think it's been such an interesting conversation for both of us. I think in many ways it's been a struggle to talk about this because we know there's a director's cut coming already yeah. instead of kind of being like, you know, was there more? Was it you know, anyway? But approaching this as if this was the only thing that existed, where do you end up as a rating for Rebel Moon Part One: A Child of Fire? Well, despite the fact that I hate so many words in a title, uh, unless you're a Star Wars movie, where I'm again very forgiving of Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. You know, that's not too many words. It's the right amount of words. Um, but for Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire, uh, rated PG-13 cut, short version for Netflix because the director's cut is coming later. Um, I actually, maybe people will think I'm being generous, but I had a good time watching it. It wasn't great, but it was good. I liked it. Um, is it underwhelming because I know Zack Snyder's capable of more than this? Yep. Yep. Maybe I am grading on a curve. I don't know. I wound up giving it a three and a half is where I land with it. Because, you know, not great. But, you know, I, I could see myself coming back and, and picking at this, watching it again. Sure. What about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a three out of five. Uh, I think it's above average, but just that. Um, I think I have a lot of issues that I've, um, you know discussed it a nauseum people are probably annoyed with listening to my voice at this point um but yeah I, I i think this just really leaves me looking forward to the director's cut um and Zack snyder himself has basically said that the director's cut is almost a completely different film because such a cheat. i mean it's why why you know, it's it's snyder why would i unchained. bother watching it then I, like, exactly, I agree with you. Exactly. It's like, this is, yeah, this is nonsense. They're, yeah. they literally are. They're trying to make fetch happen. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So, uh, but John, if people wanted to catch up with you here in the new year and see what else uh, is happening with you these days, where would they find you? Oh, you can find me online as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. 
And you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting two shows. One of them is called House Lights, where we look at the work of directors, where I try to uh, bring some culture and education to Tristan Riddell and Darren Moser, who, quite frankly, they're a couple of Philistines, let's be honest. Um, The only time they're not is when they agree with me. And you can also find me co-hosting a Star Wars show called Aggressive Negotiations, which I find to be delightful. And it's primarily because I have such a great time talking about Star Wars with my co-host, Mr. Matthew Rushing. Oh, my gosh. He's right there, right across from me right now. Uh, where do I send that check to, John? Uh, <laughs> to uh, to what's his name? The one with the cane in, in Rebel Moon. He, I owe him some money. He's going to get mad at me. Uh, uh, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 I'm also, of course, here on the network outside the 602 Club. Uh, doing shows like The Orb, Warp 5, The Archive Tango, Saddle Up, and Literary Treks. Um, you can also find me on the Nerd Party Network outside of Aggressive Negotiations with a completed show called Outpost, talking about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear. <laughs> Thank you.